Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. Siavash Madavi is someone with an eye and an ear on the future. As the forward-looking CEO of AI Music, he's teaching the robots how to sing, or at least the algorithms how to come up with mass-produced production library music in myriad automated variations. When I spoke to him from his home in London, we'd not yet arrived in the brave new world of 2021. Everything was different. Donald Trump was the President of the United States, and, well, mostly just that. Otherwise, climate crisis, pandemic, tech giant monopolies, endless Zoom calls, and musicians and composers who feel that the job of coming up with tunes and playing them to people, which had historically been their primary domain, should rightly be left to them. That was all pretty much then as it is today. But like it or not, music and how we make it, experience it, discover it, interact with it, all that does change over time, or at least the range of possible options continuously expands, hardly ever contracts, and the ratios are ever shifting. So I was interested to find out not so much why do AI people hate musicians so much, but more, what else can music be? Siavash Maravi, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah? Been uh, yeah, looking forward to 2021. Right, yeah. You over it. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like, there's, there's obviously no technical reason why magically January 1st the world's going to go back to normal, but I just feel there's so much sentiment and kind of willingness for next year to be so much better than this year, kind of from a global perspective that I'm kind of convinced something is going to happen. It's kind of an inviting disaster to say it could hardly be worse though, isn't it? <laughs> you know what? I have had the two times in my life, and they're quite sad stories, but the two times in my life when things have been really bad and, you know, both instances involved people dying, where I did say to myself, literally in my head, things couldn't get any worse. And somehow with that day something worse happened wow. and i was like bloody hell like yeah so i, I would never wish that on anyone yeah so yeah be careful well, well let's hang on to the optimism for the year but we'll we'll talk about the, the personal story even if it uh, if you prefer to skip over some of the darker bits that's absolutely fine but but we will go there but we should probably say who you are and what you do so you're ceo of something called ai music which obviously puts it very squarely into our area of interest what's ai music so at ai music we are looking at different ways of interacting with music. So we always saw music as, for me, one of the most creative art forms, and yet one where 99% of people consume in a passive lean back way. So unless you play an instrument or can produce or can sing, your interaction with music is to sit back and someone says, here's my song, and you go, I'm listening to your song, and that's all you get. And so what we were exploring is, can we shift music from what we call kind of static consumption of music to something more along the lines of dynamic co-creation where an artist a musician will make a song but you decide how to interpret that song so can you make the song a bit faster can you change the key to make it something you can sing along to can you change a genre to suit maybe your activity or mood? So that was the kind of the high level philosophy of the company. And then we went deeper into, okay, what does that actually mean? So can we make a product out of that? Uh, so we explored kind of shape changing music. We explored kind of creating kind of hyper customized remixes of songs. 
so that you know, a song gets released, we can create 10,000 versions of that song and everyone gets their own super unique version to suit them. Some of the things we're doing now are essentially the same thing, but maybe a little bit more practical around kind of uh, music beds for audio adverts. Hmm. So can a brand kind of, you know, they're launching a new phone, they're launching a new restaurant, whatever it might be. When they create an advert, have the music bed of the advert customize itself to the music you were listening to before the advert came in. And what does that do? So let's say you're listening to jazz and then, you know, you listen to like Jazz FM or something and then this um, advert pops in, uh, which no one wants adverts anyway, but they're there, right? And they, you know, they, they pay for the, you know, the musicians, they pay for everything. Can that be like a jazzy version of the ad? So that you go, oh, kind of, you know, it wasn't as disruptive. So I'm kind of, I can almost click along to it. Might be that good. But also I feel the brand understands me more and wants to engage with me more. And I'm actually more likely to then buy the product. So that's one of the, one of the applications. I've got plenty more to talk about, but yeah, that's kind of one of the practical applications of the high level philosophy we have around kind of hyper-customized music. To make ads less offensive. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Make them less offensive, less disruptive. Yeah. Yeah. And when you hear AI music, particularly, like I talk to a lot of musicians, and the phrase AI music really makes them bristle because the assumption is that it's a replacement for creative musicians. Is that how you see it? No. So my background is in the AI bit, right? So I studied a master's in machine learning. This was back in what, 2002. So we're actually the first cohort at UCL in London that did this master's in machine learning. didn't exist. I mean, AI has been around since like the 60s, 70s, but for some reason, no one thought to make it into an actual master's degree. So we're the first guys that did it then. And my, so I've always been fascinated by the role of automation and where AI sits and what can machines do better than humans? Where can they support humans and where do humans win? And that's always been really exciting for me. So actually, I started my first company when I finished my PhD in machine learning in 2008. And there we used machine learning to automatically design objects that were then 3D printed. So like big 3D shapes for a range of industries. And we focused on aerospace and Formula One and medical. And in those applications, the same challenge was there, right? So there are engineers who are also very creative. You know, they you know they might use a bit more maths, mm -hmm. but I would argue that they're as creative as musicians, and they're designing very complicated things. So they might be designing a component for an aerospace engine that has to withstand high temperatures and lots of pressures and lots of other things, um, and it might take them months and months and years to you know end up designing and optimizing something. And we design software that you click a button. It understands all the constraints and blah, 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 it kind of ends up designing this thing. And we had the same kind of pushback. So, you know, we're selling to an engineer who's listening to us and saying, hold on. So something that takes me two months to do, you do in 20 minutes. So then what do I then do? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And in those instances, what we found, because that technology has been proven really successful. So if you look at kind of any nude kind of designs within kind of aerospace or formula one they're a bit more organic looking they're bio-inspired and they're using the algorithms that we designed at the time and what's happening is that people are simply designing more things they're focusing on other aspects of the car or the or the components and focusing on driving these tools using high level kind of abstractions using high level kind of control and the outcome is better and the engineer gets to focus more on what he or she is interested in doing. Mm -hmm. So kind of moving back onto music, what we're looking at doing is 
creating tools that for musicians, so for professional musicians, continue to firstly lower the barriers of entry for the ones that you know need it. So if you don't have access to a studio, we have some tools that allow you to sync straight into the microphone of your mobile phone and we use some you know clever kind of machine learning to augment that signal and make it sound better so make it sound a little bit more like you were singing in the studio mm -hmm. so that tool is purely just helping people lower the barriers of entry to kind of creating content but also when it comes to kind of composition and to kind of creating assets again allowing musicians to focus on more of the creative stuff and less on the searching less on the mixing less on the kind of production-y bits. Now, I have had pushback. I have had sound engineers say, we love sound engineering. We love <laughs> those little micro tweaks, right? Yeah. But I would argue that we're not really replacing those jobs. I mean, so we have a tool that can automatically kind of mix and master a track, right? So just to kind of tell you what that means. So if you have a song and you have a guitar playing and a piano and drums and someone singing, those different signals go into a digital audio workstation and what you want to do is get the levels and the way in which these things kind of pan to sound good if you just throw it right you're talking about actually taking in a multi-track and getting a balance between those instruments as well i mean i've heard of ai mastering i've not heard of ai mixing is that what we're actually talking about is doing a mix yeah luckily i had a research did a phd on automatic mixing uh -huh. so yeah we have that expertise in-house we are using that internally because when we create content and our contents, you know, is in the millions of songs, we can't do that one at a time. So it has to be done at scale. Sure. So we're doing it not just because it's interesting kind of, you know, from an academic perspective, but because there is no other way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, you know, if you look at, you know, if you are releasing an album and you care about every micro detail of how something is mixed down, you'll probably still get a sound engineer to do that final mix down, right? And it's part of the fun and part of the process. So I don't think we're replacing those guys soon. But if you're creating you know, back to the original use case of, you know, radio ads and, you know, our technology. Sausage factory music is what you're talking about. Well, no, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not going to call it sausage factory music. No, it's less prominent. So if you think about this, a music bed for a radio ad is a music bed, mm -hmm. right? The, the point of the ad is the thing on top, the person trying to sell you something. Yeah. The music is supporting that. So you're not going to go, oh, how crisp are those drums? How is the guitar coming through, right? If anything, it needs to be quite muted and in the background. So in those things, and when we do it at scale, so we'll work with a, like a telecoms brand and they'll say, give us 200 versions of this advert. You know, we're not going to spend like a couple of months making our way through every single version of that and, you know, mixing all of those and listening to each one. You know, we want to be able to press a button and it goes, boop, here you go. Mm -hmm. Right, so we have a very specific reason why those things happen. If you did want to, you know, launch an album and you have the budget for it and you really care about every single thing, then you'll probably sit with the sound engineer for, you know, for weeks and weeks and tweak every little knob because actually that's part of the art and you'll still go ahead and do that. Right, so let me, let me check that I understand this. The telecommunications company is coming to you and saying, I want music that does X, Y, and Z. Can you give me, you know, a thousand different varieties of that? They're not using a tool that you've created, pressing a button and it churning out the music that according to certain parameters that they've put in. No, it is the second one. So yeah, they, they come to us, but they come to us through our software. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So basically they push the button, turn the handle, out comes some music. Yeah. yeah they're not calling us. So what you do is you say, you know, as a brand, I want to, I have three target markets. I have like gamers, 
I have, you know, people that are into sports and kind of, I don't know, people above a certain age. And for some reason, these are the people I want to sell to in these different geographies. And what you can then do is target them, which already exists, so we're not managing how to target customers. But we then can profile the music they listen to. So let's say, you know, in a gamer in London happens to be listening to hip hop, another gamer you know, in Sweden is listening to like, you know, trance, you know, we're not assuming profiles and musical tastes, right? We can then create 50 or 100 versions of the music and then we partner up with people to do the targeting. And so when you're listening to the hip hop version and you're the gamer, the ad will come in and it'll kind of deliver that ad, especially to you. And we've shown some really good results. So increase in engagement measured through by someone clicking on an ad and going, ooh, I actually want to buy this product is two and a half times more than if you didn't do the hyper-customized music. Wow. So what we're really showing is the music really does make people feel... What, sorry, what's the control for that? Is it no music or just generic music? The control would be the same track, like let's say a generic pop track. Yeah. Everyone gets, I'm measuring 50% of the audience get this one generic pop track. Mm-hmm. Another 50% get one of you know, have many versions, right? The customized versions. Yeah, yeah. And the data, like we've run this about 75 million times. So this isn't just like 100 people's short survey. We've done this for, you know, this one survey we did, this media study was, um, I think, 75 million people for over six months. And we ran these A-B tests to really prove out that there is clearly an increase in engagement when you do this. Interesting. Just so we're clear... When you say machine learning, because you you say machine learning a lot, what does it mean? What does machine learning mean? Yeah, absolutely. When you say machine learning, what do you mean by that? Because the reason I ask this question is because you started out by saying there are some things that machines are really good at. There are some things that can train them at, and there are some things that humans are better at. And the, the word learning suggests to me getting better at things. So presumably the things that humans are currently better at, they might not always be better at. Is that part of what you mean by machine learning? So the term machine learning is that the learning bit is about training the algorithm, right? So let me, let me just let me step back a bit. So we have, you know, machines can do things really quickly, right? If you want to say, you know, what's two plus two, it'll do it quicker than any human can do, right? It can do it a few billion times in a second, right? And that's how these, you know, CPUs work. When you have hard-coded rules... Right. So if X, then Y. So if, you know, I'm moving forward and I see an obstacle turn left, if I see something else turn right, that isn't machine learning. That is heuristics and rules. There are a couple of ways I can make that system more intelligent. Right. So if you move from a simple kind of robot on a table, not colliding into objects, which we've, you know, you can imagine a toy from the 80s doing that, right? You know, you put your hand in front of it, it goes, eh, it stops and it turns, right? When you move from that to autonomous vehicles in the road, where you have different lighting conditions, you have rain, you have different road conditions, people jumping out of nowhere, different types of cars, glare, all those things, you don't just add more rules because you're never going to come up with every single rule. So you can't say... If two people plus a pram coming this way, plus it's sunny and you're going at 27 miles an hour, what do you do in that instance? Right. Because that's just going to compound into like, you're going to just have versions and scenarios that you haven't planned and the whole thing's going to fail, right? What you instead do is you train the system. You give it examples of um, human behavior, for example. You can have, you can literally track a human driving 
And it says, okay, so what I saw here is when input X, Y, Z, which was two people from the left, one person from the right, and this, 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 this person did this, it starts to learn the system like a human would learn, right? So you can watch your, you know, you can watch your parents drive a car and you just slowly see, you know, every time there's a zebra crossing, they tend to kind of slow down. They're not telling you, you know, we slow down 30 meters before the zebra crossing. You just kind of feel that just seems to be what you do, right? And, and you have systems like that that learn in those ways by taking inputs and outputs and working out how to map the two things together themselves, Right? And that's the learning process. And then you then reverse the equation and say, okay, now let's see what you can do. And then they'll try and do something. And then, so that's why training data is important. So when you train machine learning systems, you want to make sure the data is diverse enough so that the system doesn't make wrong assumptions. So for example, if I train an autonomous car only in California where it's really sunny, you go take it to Scandinavia, it's going to fail, yeah, right? for sure. Right, so you need to go, right, I'm going to train across all these different scenarios, all these different types of cars, different roads, different environments, and so these systems have that kind of learning. Kind of relating that back to music, you know, if you're teaching a system how to make a song and all you do is, is send a deep house and say, here's what all this kind of trance and house stuff looks like, and then say, make me some jazz, it's going to come up with some really weird jazz, right? Right. So you have to like expose these systems to these things. So that's what I call machine learning. A bunch of questions arising from that. Number one is, I can understand teaching a machine the rules of musicology. This is how chords are structured. This is how rhythm works. This is how harmonies operate. But the culture of music, like you mentioned different genres of music, genres of music are not just alterations to the rules, they're cultural. How do you sort of get the computer to at least seem to understand the cultures of music? Okay, so so with music, and this is um, the fun thing about music, is there is a lot of maths in music, right? It's all about frequencies, it's about kind of um, those ratios of those frequencies, they're music theory books, right? So I did my, you know, I did classical musical training. And so, you know, you do your grade five and grade six, and these are like, okay, so here's what minor chords are right are like. Here's what a scale is. Here's what arpeggios are. And these rules, like any kind of other art form, are actual rules, right? Like you, you start with basic things, you know, so the, the chords you hit with your left hand on the piano will be in the same key as the notes you play in your right hand on the piano. If you do something else, it kind of sounds a bit wrong. Right? So you have these foundational rules that you don't really break. What happens as you become a better musician is you can start flexing those rules. Right? So like jazz is a really great example where you kind of shifted from you know hardcore kind of classical, so Baroque and Bach. If you look at the rules they were breaking, they really weren't. Right? You have to end the final chord you hit in a piano sonata isn't the exact same. It's the kind of the the root chord. It's the Amen resolution. Yeah. If you end up in the minor or in, and I, like everyone's like, I think it was like the church would come after you or something, right? Like you literally weren't allowed to do it, right? And then you look at kind of slowly moving on to ram romantic music and moving on to kind of jazz. You know, the rules they don't go out the window. They become more and more complicated. So if you'd spoken to Miles Davis and said, okay, tell me about your rules, you'll, you'll come up with like modal jazz and other types of kind of music that are extensions of how, from a classical foundation, right? So there is a way of teaching systems rules. Then the, but you can imagine if you teach something rules and teach your own the basic rules, it's going to be really constrained to be really boring. You're never going to come up with like a Bohemian Rhapsody, right? You then want to also allow freedom to explore. So like a foundation of rules with the freedom to explore on top. 
So that's, that's kind of the ways in which you kind of teach music theory. Now, when it comes to the idea of genres, it's actually an interesting one because if you don't think about it much and you go, how many genres are there? Some people might go like, like 10, right? But if you look at like, for example, you know, what we have at AI Music, I think we have like 120 and that's even then we're collapsing things on top of each other. Like just when it comes to like, you know, house music, there's like Big Room House and Deep House and Tropical House and French House. And, and even within those, you say, okay, tell me exactly what Deep House is. People, you know, you ask 10 musicians, they'll tell you 10 different things. So genres are kind of annoying in a way because there's a lot of, you know, and this is the fun of music, right? You can cross-pollinate across genres and like have a hip-hop track that has lots of jazz or soul influence, right? And that's where samples and things can come into it. But we have to use the idea of genres because people want to search our content by typing those things in. So they'll say, give me some Latin pop in a major key with a guitar. And we need to kind of know what that means and then present them with what we think that means, right? Interesting. I mean, further questions arising from that. Okay, what? A, where do I start with this? So one thing that you said, I think that was really telling more about you, I guess, than about music or about AI is the phrase you used was something like, uh, the fun thing about music is that it has lots of mathematics in it. And that sort of speaks to something about you, I think. Where does that come from for you? What is this sort of interest in the kind of the precision and the science and the the mathematics of it all being the fun part come from? (laughs) Well, it's, I guess I'm very, I mean, you know, my background is in engineering, you know, I love physics and, you know, if you give me any object, I'll try and like work out how it was made and I'll like, you know, tap it and scratch it and look at it. And so for me, understanding something allows me to appreciate it more, right? And with music, when I first learned there was maths in music, you know, which wasn't, you know, initially intuitive, that actually got me more excited. I was like, wow, so you're telling me I can work out how this, you know, this piano sonata that I love to play was constructed, you know, and, you know, even even now I have piano lessons. I've been playing piano for, for 30 something years, but, you know, I still have this, you know, really great teacher that comes in once a week and just pushes me further and further. But what I love to discuss with them is, okay, so I can see something happening in this part of the piece. It seems to be a variation of what happened in the previous passage. And then we go, yes, you see, so now we're moving away from kind of, you know, an arpeggiated left hand to kind of block chords and it's moving here. And you can see how here, when we hit this top note here, that isn't the important note. The important note is the one before. This is just kind of a, this is a supporting note. And, you know, and again, it's kind of breaking these things down adds to the beauty of it because to me, the composer probably didn't think in that way at all. Right. They just played it and it sounded good but the fact that we can then build up reverse engineer all of this maths from underneath and go wow you just worked this out without really thinking about the maths is what makes it exciting Hmm. you see what i mean so the the mathematical properties of the composition are intuited they're inherent in the composer they're sort of this um inbuilt knowledge rather than a calculation that goes on at the point of creation yeah exactly i mean the more as a you know as humans we've we've learned about music and have kind of evolved composing more and more rules and things come in mm. right so people will go oh that was the wrong note right someone will compose something and hit this chord and we might go Ugh. yeah right what the hell was that but that's their composition right they can be like i want that note and someone will say no it's in the wrong key that note here should be here right and they'll say, well, no, I want to do this, right? So we have this 
idea of rules, even though a, a non-trained musician will still kind of squirm when they hear the wrong note, that they won't know why, but they'll say it sounds wrong. Sure. Right? So yeah, so I think you can build up on rules, but what's amazing is when you just compose without really thinking about the rules, if you see what I mean. Sure. And I guess that what you're trying to do is give the that sort of inherent, intuited idea of how you put those rules together, you want to be able to teach a machine to be able to do that. Yeah. So there are a couple of things, right? So in the beginning, we had more hard-coded rules in our system because we initially don't care about creating a new masterpiece. We want to make music that people understand, right? So if I make a Latin pop track or some reggae, I want people to immediately go, yeah, that pretty much sounds like reggae. I'm not breaking the rules of reggae and coming up with some whole new contemporary type of reggae for, you know, to kind of, you know, push that genre forward. That's not the point of what we do. Mm -hmm. So in that case, we can fit to the rules of the certain instruments and sounds and timbres and song structures that we know exist. Over time, we start removing the rules and see what the system does, and it can start exploring a bit more. So we're kind of at that stage now where we're able to, as an example, cross-pollinate genres, mm-hmm. right? So we can take, you know, you know, sounds of kind of classical music and, you know, p- apply them on Latin pop and see what it sounds like. Hmm. Right, and, and it often kind of comes up with some really interesting results. For sure. So we're kind of looking at that, and then we go, okay, so if we do that, if we get, create a system that has less rules, we are more likely to create things that people don't like because something might clash. And if I'm creating you know, a million songs at a time, how do I even manage that quality control? So what do we then do? How do we filter? So, for example, like how do we expand beyond the rules and then prune back the bits that don't make sense, and but still leave these gems. Right. Instead of just constraining ourselves to just the rules. So that's the kind of place we are right now. Right. It's interesting because none of this sounds like what you started out saying was the point of all this, which was this sort of collaborative approach to to listening to music, this idea that mm-hmm. that uh, it's a co-creation. Um, it does, I mean, customization and co-creation are not the same thing. So where does the co-creation part come into this? Sure. So... What I've been, I guess, focusing on, you know, the last while is around creating the underlying elements of a song. We then have something that sits on top of that we call the remix engine. And that's where the co-creation comes in. So that allows the end user and that, you know, could be just an individual that wants to have fun all the way through to a big corporate that wants to make radio ads and anything else, right? To then interact with that music. So that's where they then sit on top and go, okay, you know what? I don't like this instrument. I want to remove it. I want to shift the genre. I want to make it faster. I want to change the key. I want to make the whole track start and stop within like 20 seconds because I want to use it for a video I want to post on Instagram. And my my video is only 20 seconds long and I don't want to just have a 20-second snippet of a track. I want to have a piece of music that almost sounds like it was made perfectly to the length of of my video. Or I want a one hour long mix, you know. So they, these are the kind of tools that then sit on top of the engines that make the assets. One of the fun things we're working on now is fully dynamic music that changes in real time. So the applications there would be in fitness, for example, where you might fit sensors of a smartwatch to the elements of, this, of the song. So as an example, we took the running pace of someone running and mapped that to the tempo of a song and then we took the heart rate and we mapped that to the energy of the song and so as you're running uh, if you're running slowly to begin with you know maybe you listen to some hip-hop 
And as you kind of get faster and faster, it moves kind of like, you know, into like house and then like ends up in like drum and bass at 174 BPM. And your heart rate maps the energy level because you could also like start sprinting in the beginning, but you're actually not tired yet. So it can still be quite subdued. But as your heart rate goes up, the energy level, so like the, the number of instruments that come in, the way they're kind of presented with each other all kind of expands and you get that kind of thing. And that's quite a fun experience as well. So that kind of technology allows, you know, an, an adaptation by the user that's actually unconscious. You know, they're not actively controlling it by saying, make it faster. They're just running faster and the thing is somehow adapting to them. So we're speaking to some fitness companies about that. We're speaking to VR companies, gaming as well. So, you know, if you're playing games and the, the music just interacts with any, you know, with your gameplay. So all the increased peril equals heightened music, I guess, that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 All those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It sounds very much like, and this is, I think, I guess is the thing that musicians might hear as reassuring is that you're creating music for having on while something is happening, not music for listening to. Uh, do you make that distinction? So I would say we have ambitions for both and we do have, we have a YouTube channel, for example, that is, you just listen to music, right? You know, it's very basic because you can't do much with it because it's just running through YouTube, but it's, um, we do have that. But if you look at, music consumption of the last few years, so much of it is activity or mood-based. I mean, if you look at playlists on Spotify, they're all around, you know, is it music to study to? Is it breakfast music? Is it workout music? Versus it's just music that you listen to because you're going to sit down and listen to music. Uh, and I know my own, my, you know, my own musical kind of consumption has shifted. You know, I go, okay, what do I want to experience? I want to calm down. You know, I'm going to write a big email. Okay, I'll listen to some cool ambient music, for example. Or, you know, I want to, I'm about to go upstairs and kind of exercise. I'm going to like listen to, you know, something higher energy to, to kind of motivate myself. So you, you always look at those things. So in that instance, musical kind of listening habits have shifted. And that's obviously a lot to do with our access to streaming and personalization versus listening to an album, which you know, unless the, the artist is of a very specific genre, can jump around and so you get less control over what you do. Or listen to the radio, which again, unless you listen to a genre-specific radio station, you have less control. So here, because you have the minute control of every single kind of song you want to listen to, the activity and mood-based listening is something that's becoming much more prevalent. Mm. Uh, one issue arising, I guess, from uh, customised and, and co-created songs is who owns it? Who owns the composition? Because it must exist. There must be something that you've wrestled with. Oh, yeah. Oh, and we still haven't solved it. Mm. So we we don't need to necessarily own it, right? Because, the, I mean, music rights, I mean, I didn't even know the beginnings of how complex music rights are until I got into this company. Um, yeah, it's a wee bit thorny, isn't it? Yeah, there's like publishing rights and there's like the recorded rights, then there's like the mechanical rights, and then there's like different compositions. They'll have different splits. And then you then like assign your rights to different kind of people across different countries who will then like manage the collections for you for different and it's like insane right and actually what we do is we simplify that from our perspective which is if you want our music we own every single bit of our music so just take it and go nuts we don't care what you do with it so that is itself something if you just want to take our music to use if you then want to add something to it again depending on the use case you can just go ahead and take it we again don't care because that's one of the beauty of having access to our content. There's no temptation if, uh, let's say, um, Nicki Minaj uses one of your tracks as a backing, has a worldwide smash hit with it, makes a million, you're not coming knocking on the door? 
That's the thing, right? Like you have, you know, that would be a good problem to have if I, you know, if we get to a point where we have, you know, you know, global artists taking our content and doing that, you know, we may have to like think about whether, you know, we should have struck a better contract or a better deal in that instance. But it's not that dissimilar to sample packs, right? So, you know, if you're making a track, you can go to, you know, hundreds of websites and download, you know, audio samples. There may be someone, you know, you know, playing an instrument or maybe some kind of cool sound effect and you know, as part of the license fee, you get to like drag and drop it into your song and do whatever you want with it. Then if you look at the, you know... Yeah, we're not talking about a snare hit though. We're talking about a three and a half minute produced song that's been mixed and mastered. I agree. It's different. Yeah. Yeah. So it it does get a little bit complicated, but I mean, my question is not just, do you own that, but does the machine own that? I mean, presumably if you're able to essentially churn out every possible combination of um, melody, harmony, rhythm, and just put it out there and go, now we own this, then basically nobody can compose new music anymore without the threat of a copyright challenge. Yeah. We actually did think of something like that in the beginning. Like, why don't we just do every possible melody, like within a 16 bar phrase, how many possible notes are there? Let's literally make every single version and just throw it out there. That's uh, the copyright troll approach. Yeah. But yeah, so that, the challenges with that is that copyright works a bit differently, right? You have to, it's not like patents where you say I'm the first and I, I get to claim my stake. Copyright is all around copying. So you have to prove that someone else heard that and copied you so as an example if i write a track that sounds just like shape of you by ed sheeran and i can prove that for the last 20 years i was stuck on a deserted island and didn't speak to anyone i'm not infringing his copyright which is it's different to patents right patents the influence needs to be there yeah exactly it needs to, the, the act of copying needs to be proven now of course what happens is we're in a world that's connected and there's no chance of me being able to prove that i didn't listen to that and so what happens is they go and listen to the acoustic similarities and what have you and then it becomes more like a comparison mm-hmm. but the idea of just kind of churning out you know a billion chord progressions doesn't actually get you what you wanted to, what you wanted to get to because you have to then show that people had access to every single version of those and somehow heard them to then be inspired to make their number one hit. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. It does raise the issue. And you talked about autonomous vehicles before. And of course, when you talk about autonomous vehicles, the next step is to talk about the trolley problem and AI and ethics and uh, and those sorts of things. What are the ethical considerations for AI music? Ethical... Um I mean, the topic of displacing artists is probably, I mean, which I guess we've covered is, is, is top of mind. So I think, I can't really think of much more around that. And then the other thing would be about not making caricatures of genres that we're not experts in. Right. So you mean cultural appropriation kind of? Kind of, yeah. So let's say they go, okay, you know, a customer of ours says, hey, go make some reggaeton, Right. And we, let's say none of us, you know, we've heard it, but we're not experts in what it does. And then we come up with like a really generic kind of cartoon version of reggaeton. Yeah. I guess, you know, you could argue like, are you, are you taking the piss? Like that's, that's not reggaeton. But yeah, I guess, you know, that would also be in line with, you know, the customer then not wanting that, that track. So yeah, so I guess maybe some from ethical perspective, that could be another thing as well. Mm. And I guess, uh, given the nature of what you do, you would uh, fall under the category of startup. So you're in the London startup ecosystem. Presumably you have investors who are sort of breathing down your neck, wanting particular results from things. What What's the trajectory for, for a company like yours? So I really love what I do. They're like I've managed to create like the perfect job. You know, so it's a great mixture of like super geeky, techie, like algorithms and using my own expertise and then spending the rest of the day talking about music and making music. 
and the rest of the team as well like everyone in the music in our company and we're only we're just under 20 people so we're small uh, a good half of us are kind of either amateur musicians or we even have things on spotify and tour and so i don't really want to like exit or sell which is um you know, a typical trajectory for a startup is like a big company comes in and says, that's great, we'll take everything. I'm not saying that won't happen. You know, you never, you know, you don't know what the future holds, but, you know, I think I love to continue doing what we're doing. And, you know, I guess as, as you kind of pointed out, move, you know, start to expand beyond, you know, some of the very practical, slightly boring kind of radio advert music sound beds, which is, it has to, you know, pays the bills and, you know, you have to kind of make sure you're a functional company and move to more explorative, okay, you know, I want every person on the planet to be able to like swipe left and right on a smartphone and create, you know, real time shape changing music and be able to slowly move to kind of towards that place, you know, but, you know, maintaining a sustainable company. Mm. Is there any thought about training AIs to compose in the manner of a particular composer? Uh, so for instance, let's say you want something a bit radio heady. Can you actually program a Tom York way of thinking about music, uh, creation? Yeah, you definitely can. We actually, do you, do you know about the guy who hacked into Radiohead's servers and took all their stems? I did hear something about that, but, uh, I didn't know that he used it as an AI modeling. No, 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 he didn't. No, he just he just took it and held them for ransom and said, "I'm going to release these unless you give us how much." And Radio said, "Head said they just released it." So what we actually did, those are just available on their website. We took a few of those and we have actually taken some Tom York vocals and mixed them into some Latin pop. It sounds hilarious, but yeah, you definitely can. You can take elements from tracks if you get access to them and just like literally mix the two things up and see what happens. Which is, I guess, more basic, but it's the the way in which we do it and find you know, a chord progression on a piano that perfectly hits the melody that he happens to sing. Those are some of the clever bits. Mm. But yeah, you can then move to the level you're describing, which is you take someone's entire back catalogue and look at kind of, you know, what would they've written next and and train, again, the machine learning models on, you know, what kind of instruments did they use? What kind of, you know, chord progressions and melodies, you know, did they really come up with and be able to come up with the next one? Sure. So in the absence of a new Radiohead album, create me a new Radiohead album is basically the call. And and we're working towards that is what you're saying. Uh, I mean, the business case for that is smaller, mm-hmm. right? So we'd have to, I mean, you literally have to have like a label come to us and say, look, we know we own all of, you know, the Prince back catalog. You know, we want to make more money from this. Can you, can we write three more albums? And somehow like, I mean. There's your ethics uh, issue right there. <laughs> right, I know. And then, you know, obviously no one can sign off on that. And I'm sure his fans would be kind of horrified that there's all this new content coming out that he definitely didn't actually make. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess there's some ethical issues around that as well, yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I'm kind of curious, just to sort of round off, what sort of kid were you? Was, uh, you know, were these elements always there or the people you went to school with would look at you now and go, yeah, obviously that's where he was going to end up? Or is this sort of, because you started your story studying engineering and it feels like there's something that led up to that. I mean, no, music has always been part of my life. As a family, I mean, my grandmom used to play the violin. My dad plays an instrument called a santur. It's an Iranian instrument. Uh, my mom used to sing. And, you know, the house would be always filled with music. And I've been playing piano since I was eight. So we've always been really into music, playing it nonstop and kind of exploring, you know, really wide range of genres from kind of classical Iranian music through to kind of, you know, you know rock and hip hop and that kind of stuff. 
And actually, when I was looking to do my PhD, so even though I studied engineering, there was the option back in kind of the early 2000s to look at music then. So I had this kind of thought of applying AI to music back then. I'm really lucky I didn't do it because none of the tech existed to be able to do it. Like we would have been decades ahead of the ability to actually kind of get to where, what we can do now. So no, it's always, it's always been part of what I've been fascinated about. That's why I'm saying I'm really lucky to be able to do what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah, it strikes me that your story almost points out that there's no such thing as too much music, that you can be somebody who's really into creating music and, and making music and want to put that out into the world, while also your day job is creating millions and millions of tracks for, for commercial purposes without that actually being you know an internal conflict of any kind. I think that's really interesting. No, definitely. I mean, there, I mean if you think about it, every day 40,000 new songs get uploaded to Spotify, right? No one's listening to most of those, and we can't anyway. And so, you know, the rate at which music is growing is far greater than any of us will ever be able to catch up with. So in that instance, there is already more than enough music, right? I think new genres is really interesting. I would love to get to a point where I can officially say we have, we, we've invented our own new genre that people enjoy, and we can maybe name it. That'd be quite fun. But yeah, I think the process of making music is never going to change. People are going to always want to like sit there with their friends and strum a guitar and sing along and come up with new things. And live music, which is obviously, you know, didn't really happen in 2020, is something I'm really looking forward to in the future. Mm. Brilliant. Sivash, thanks so much for your time. It's been really interesting. Great. Thank you very much. AI Music CEO, Sivash Madhavi. And that's the MTF podcast from here at MTF Labs. I'm Dubber. You can find me at Dubber on Twitter. MTF Labs is MTF Labs on basically everything. And that is where you'll find us. Thanks to Sergio Castillo for the additional technical production. Lance Conrad and Ayrton for the music. Run Dreamer for the MTF audio logo. And you for listening. Hope you're well and staying safe. Wear a mask, wash your hands, all that stuff. And I'll catch you back here next week. Talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.